Well, as we come to the Word of God today, we come to Hebrews chapter 8, as we continue to march through a periodic uh, series when I'm in the pulpit in the morning, uh, we're now to the 8th chapter of Hebrews. Uh, Let us hear God's inspired and inerrant Word. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain." But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been flawless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful Toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Amen. May God bless that reading of his word to our hearts and lives. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we ask now that you would do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. That your word would be opened and applied by the illumining work of your Holy Spirit to our hearts and lives. We come to worship you, faithfully coming to hear your voice. And so we ask now that this inspired text would be illumined for us. That the light would come on in our life. And that indeed you might shape us more and more after the image of Christ our Lord. Help us to live to his glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Now, maybe this morning you have already peeked at the questions for lunch at the bottom of the outline, and you are wondering, what does foghorn leghorn have to do with this text in Hebrews chapter 8? Well, foghorn leghorn is a large, southern, accented, anthropomorphic adult rooster appearing in numerous Warner Brothers animated cartoons, especially Looney Tunes. Or at least that's the way Wikipedia defines him. Leghorn, for those of you that don't know, is a breed of chicken. Foghorn describes a loud, overbearing voice which was patterned after Senator Beauregard Clanghorn, a popular radio character on the Fred Allen Show in the late 1940s. Now, just so I get no questions at the door, I was not born in the 1940s. But I have heard uh, my father listening to some old recordings of the Fred Allen Show. That's a joke. That's a joke, I say, son, was one of Clanghorn's catchphrases, which routinely came out of the big chicken's mouth. My favorite le- foghorn leghorn phrase, though, is fatherly. I say, I say now, boy, I say, boy, listen up now. Listen up to me, I hear. My children have had to in- bear my imitations of a number of things, including <laughs> almost all the characters of Looney Tunes. And in Hebrews chapter 8, you may not hear that southern accent, but, but it is there in the text. The gist of it is certainly there. After chapters of extended argument, the author grabs us and shakes us and says, now, now listen up now, you hear? And so we come this morning to this text, sitting on the edge of our seats, wondering what the point of the previous two and three chapters is for our daily Christian living. And the answer is clear. The answer is profound. The answer is an encouragement to how we will worship now in his house and how we will live the rest of this week. And it's simply this, that Jesus Christ is not an earthly priest. He is a heavenly priest who cares for our souls. The introduction, now the point in what we are saying is this carries in its next breath a wonderful encouragement. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So the first thing we hear is the place in which Jesus Christ now resides. His place is in the heavens, we're told, by the inspired author. Now, everything that Pastor Fred Greco told us during Advent is absolutely true. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is the one who took on flesh and dwelt among us. He was born at Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was placed in the manger. He was a little baby boy One who came and cried and fed and had to be changed. He was truly human. Earlier, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews puts it this way. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He, therefore, likewise also partook of the same. 
Paul tells us in Philippians, he who was in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, he lowered himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. Yes, the Christmas story is true, and those Advent messages are something that we should hold on to with both hands and with our full heart. But the Son of God in becoming incarnate did not do so just for no purpose. He became incarnate that He might live a perfect and holy life. Think of all the mass and sea of humanity. Think of the largest crowd that you have ever seen. If you've been on Times Square when the, when the ball comes down, if, if you've been uh, sitting at a window and looking at a, a city thronging full of people waiting for the fireworks of the 4th of July, not a one of them there is the man or woman or boy or girl that they ought to be. Each one of us is broken and twisted. We are, we are damaged. We, we are not what God created us to be and called us to be. But Jesus, He is the one unique person, the one unique human in all of human history. He is perfectly in the image of God. He never turned His mind or His heart away from the will of His heavenly Father. He completely kept the Ten Commandments. And the moral law of God they summarize at harmony with both God and also man. He gave meticulous observance to the Mosaic law as it applied to him as a Jew in the first century. Even in his perfection, however, he found himself being a stumbling block to many. And many then and now simply hate Him. And so He was put to death. But the purposes of His incarnation were achieved by His crucifixion. He came and lived a perfect life to die and suffer for us. He took on flesh and dwelt among us in order that He might be a sacrifice for His people. And so Paul tells us, being found in the form of a man... He humbled Himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. He was pushed down into the grave by us that we might find life eternal with Him forevermore. But the text tells us that His place is in the heavenlies. You see, He was from heaven when He came down to us. And so death could not rightly hold Him. He suffered fully for our sins, and then He shook the chains of death off of His arms. And He rose on ascension morning to the glories of heaven where He was received and hailed as the one triumphant over death. Oh, His resurrection is for our resurrection. And so we sing at Easter, Up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph for His foes. We sing that because it's true. Because it's true in our life, for our life. He triumphed that we might live forever. 
The forces on evil couldn't hold him down. And so we have rightly confessed together this morning. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God Almighty. His place is now in heaven. But not just anywhere in heaven on a street corner of gold. His place in heaven is before the very throne of God. He is at the real center of the universe, the hub around which everything seen and unseen turns, the throne room, the glory room, where angels and cherubim and seraphim cry out of His glory and His majesty one to another, a place where Isaiah caught some glimpse, the the robe, the train of His robe fills that temple, that place, smoke rises up. It is an awesome and breathtaking place. The departed saints are there. The martyrs of the faith. The ones who have been eaten by lions. Who have been crucified and set alight. Who have been starved and frozen and drowned and chopped to pieces. Because they love Jesus with all their heart. There's no more important place in all of the created order than that place where God manifests His glory so profoundly as in that throne room of heaven. Now, what's the most impressive place you've ever been? Have you been to the Taj Mahal? Or perhaps... You've been to the U.S. Capitol. You know, to stand in the, in the Capitol rotunda is a, is a very humbling and, and profoundly historically shaping and context-making event for a little, little child. Or maybe better than that, you've been to Kyle Field and you've cheered and you've cried. Nothing. The greatest place you've ever been. Nothing compares to that place to that throne room, to that glory room where He right now is. That is where Jesus is. And that is where you, where you are, if you are united to Him by faith and by the Spirit. Oh, your bottom is sitting in the pew. But if you are united by faith and by the Spirit, to Jesus Christ our Lord, if you trust in Him for your salvation, if you have seen your sinfulness and your brokenness and your need of the Savior, the only true and living Savior, then you are with Him there as truly as He is with you now and gathered with us in His place as He promises. Oh, He is in the heavenly throne room and He is there Uh, not just for some sort of vacation or um, sports celebration. He is there for you. Because you need the ministry that flows from that place. You need, in your Christian life, in your Christian walk, the life, the strength, the light, the encouragement, the joy, the love, the peace that only can come from that place and from that man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
His place is in the heavenlies above and in that throne room. And He ministers for us in that place, which is too wonderful to fully comprehend. You see, He is the one mediator between God and man. He stands between. He knows you. He sympathizes with your weaknesses. Not that He indulges your weaknesses, but He understands from inside human nature the temptations and discouragements that you face, the pain that you feel, the upside-down disorientation of life that hits us at different stages as we grow older and not as much wiser as we wish. He knows you. And so that's good for you and reassuring for you and to your blessing. But He also is in a special relationship with His Heavenly Father. The Son of God is one in a Trinitarian fashion with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He knows His Father. This relationship is so profound that He could say to us, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. And the Father could inspire Paul to write of the the Son of the Father's love being our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, He... He knows God the Father. They share the same divine mind. They they share the same divine fellowship in life. And that fellowship in life is on a level and in a way that, that we only catch glimpses of, even by His special revelation. We will spend eternity seeing new frequencies of color and beauty of sound that emanate and shine and echo from the divine life, the love of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit together in their great and blessed unity. It is too much for us. He's told us some things about it. We know it's the powerhouse, the the center, the dynamo of everything that exists. It flows from Him. And so from that place. But He is incarnate. And so He is perfectly able to minister that to you in your present need. You see, He doesn't minister in an earthly temple built by human hands. He is in the glorious sanctuary above that has been built by God. That is where He belongs. His person is divine. You know, I wish you could have been with me here yesterday. Um, I came in in the afternoon and, and Fred texted me and said, Hey, is there anything in your office you won't set up? And so I, I swung by after I got in from Orlando and, and Fred was just floating three feet off the ground. He was bopping from one place to another. His face was shining. The joy was radiating. He was finally getting into his office. His books were being put in the right order. He was settling back in to life at Christ Church Katy. Jesus is in that heavenly 
temple of love. It's just His right place to be. He is at home there with the manifestation of the Father, with the dramatic, dynamic presence of the Holy Spirit in a way that is gobsmacking and overwhelming even to angels and cherubim and seraphim. You know, He has gone on, He has told us, to prepare mansions for us. But you see, our mansions will be but a shadow of what His mansion is. That place where we will abide in joy and peace and harmony and glorious triumph is pale by comparison to His sanctuary and the light and life that emanate from Him and warm and touch and transform all in His presence. There, He has presented Himself to His heavenly Father. There, the watching eyes of the angels have have stood amazed at the drama of the ascended, resurrected, glorious Christ walking into that sanctuary with human hands and feet and taking His place there by the throne of God Himself. He's been received and acknowledged as triumphant over death, over sin, and over Satan. There, our salvation has been formally acknowledged. It's been written in the Lamb's book of life. It's been carved, as it were, in stone because God, having acknowledged and received the triumph of His mediator, will never go back on His promises. He will never go back on His word. You are safe in Christ if indeed you are truly His by faith and by the Spirit. And there, we, united to Him by faith and the Spirit, in Him sit safely forevermore. Oh, there is more to the story. We will one day see Him when He comes back. He will bring heaven down to us. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. We will live not by the light of the sun, but the light shining from His countenance, His glory beaming from all that He has put in proper place. And so it's no wonder that that place is the pattern for this place. That that heavenly place is the pattern for the earthly tabernacle and temple below. You see, they were but a pale shadow of that divine creation above. Do you remember the Ark of the Covenant? Do you remember the showbread, the, the lampstands? Do you, do you remember the different utensils, the the altar, the horns of the altar, the sacrificial rites that were administered by Levitical priests according to the Mosaic legislation God gave. All of it. All of it merely serves to point. To point to that which is above. To the heavenly temple. To the glory room. To Christ who sits on the throne. 
All of it points to Jesus and to His great work and triumph on our behalf. He and His place are the mother of all right worship. They're the mother of all temples and tabernacles true. Even what we do now, what we do today as we come to this table is but a shadow or an echo of what happens there. You see, in the New Covenant era, the shadow has been fulfilled. Uh, We didn't bring any butcher knives this morning, the pastoral staff, to the worship service. Uh, There's no fire prepared on which to do the barbecue so that you might enjoy the lamb and the bulls and the turtle doves. No, we... We don't do any of that now, not because it was wrong before or or that we're wrong now. God appointed that in the past as a very literal outline picture to teach us of the substance and work of Christ above. And now what we do is in full union and communion with Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he is in the heavenlies. He is the Word of God incarnate. He is our prophet, priest, and king. He has put His Word into the mouths of His prophets and apostles of old. And so is it any wonder that in our worship service, we read the very Word of God, which He has delivered to us through them. The Word read and the Word preached, they are central to our worship. And as we worship even right this moment, we do so in union and communion with Him. And because that is now what He wants us to do. No more knives. No more concophonies of chaos gloriously overwhelming us and pointing us to heaven. No, now we come and listen to the Word read and preached and sung and prayed. And He gives us the privilege and encouragement of even seeing the Word. We don't have Him appear before us in visible form at this time. He will. He will come. He will come back even as He has left us to go to that place when He returns. But now, He gives us His Word to be seen by the elements of the Lord's Supper and of baptism. They are visible signs and seals of His covenant promises. They remind us and encourage us in our weakness, in our fear, in our brokenness, that our love and trust of Him is something that comes from outside of us. It is a gift from Him from heaven. As He gives us to eat and to drink, our souls are fortified. You know, there have been occasions down through history when the church has gotten very confused about this. Uh, The church has gotten into all sorts of Aristotelian philosophy and and attempts to argue that the the bread is somehow the flesh of Christ literally and the blood is somehow, or the, the cup is somehow His blood physically. And these sorts of worries and speculations and and ideas are nothing but so much claptrap. Because you see, as we partake of bread and of the cup of the fruit of the vine, as we partake of them as believers, 
looking to Christ alone for our salvation. It's not cannibalism that we're engaged in. It's spiritual union and communion. The Holy Spirit comes and lifts our hearts to heaven. Our souls feed upon Christ who is heaven. The blessings and benefits of what come out, shine out and flow out of that glorious throne room and sanctuary above, they become ours in our seat. They become ours in our heart and life as we chew and as we pray and as we swallow to His glory. We do what He has required because His purpose is to bless us by His grace in His Son. That's why worship is not a matter of earthly taste. It's not a matter of earthly style. The scriptural principle of worship, called in the old days the regulative principle, you know, we don't like to regulate anything now in America. So the scriptural principle... The scriptural principle is this. We do what Jesus wants us to. We do what He does. What we do is related to what He does in heaven even now. We pray. And what does He do? He takes our prayers and He mingles them with the incense of His own. And He presents them to His heavenly Father. Prayers that we pray for ourselves and for one another mingled with prayers sweet and sure and true that come from the lips of the incarnate Savior. Prayers about your life. Prayers about my life. They sweeten the pot. It smells wonderful to the Heavenly Father because the perfume, as it were, the incense of the Son of His love is presented before Him. And so all, not just some, all now, of His requests are answered, yea and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our prayers are answered better than we even know how to ask. We ask for a stone and He gives us a loaf. We ask for a loaf and He gives us a factory. God blesses us richly in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Reformation was right. Christian worship is profound but not profound because the ancient or the mystical or the hierarchical ways are the true ones. The Reformation was right because Christ is true. And He is in the heavenly place. And He ministers to and for us. We worship with Him. And our text tells us something of His posture Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Well, it's not so odd to be seated in worship, you might think. There are a lot of us and there's only one of you and and we're all seated. But you know, for Jesus to be seated in that place, his posture indicates something. It's not indicating that he's tired or that he's lazy or that there's a tingle in his toes. What it indicates is, is that there is no more work for him to do to secure our salvation. He has been crucified, dead and buried and resurrected. 
He who went down to minister to us has now come to heaven and has been rightly seated in the place of honor in that glory room above. It's very different than the Aaronic priesthood. You know, they never got to sit down. They got to sweat. They got to wash blood off. They had to comb their hair to get ready to do the the wave offering. And they had to comb their hair again after the wave offering. There was all sorts of mechanical detail that they had to go through. And now, we have something better still. Rather than a play or an opera acting out and pointing to meaning, we enjoy the substance of the meaning itself. It's sort of like the difference between getting one M&M and enjoying an entire chocolate cake as much as you wish. He sits. He sits and glories in all that he has accomplished. Now, his posture does not mean that he's empty-handed. Verse 3 says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. The earthly priests all had to have offerings, and they even had to make sacrifices for their own sins. Jesus is not a sinner, never has been, never will be, so he has no sin for which to atone except our own. But that means that that he is without spot or blemish. That means that, that he has been triumphant and that all the rewards of heaven held out in the great covenant of grace, all of them are his. And he who has ascended has given gifts to men. He who is now in the glory room, he rains down glory upon your life and upon your Christian walk. You face a day in which you are confused and frustrated and angry. And Jesus reigns His peace and His love and His light and His life down into you and your life. He transforms you daily more and more after His image in that progressive walk of sanctification. Oh yes, you pick up your feet and move, but you do so because of the rock the rock of what Jesus and what His Holy Spirit do in you. We cooperate with God because He gives us the grace. He calls us to. He matures us. He raises us, having first given us faith, having first blessed us. That which is ours, as adopted sons and daughters, progressively becomes more and more ours in our experience this side of heaven. And his posture is a comfort to us. We can have confidence in such a high priest referred to in verse 1. He's not straining. He's not cheering because he doesn't know the outcome. He's not worried about whether we're going to make it another lap. He sits and he gives us all that we need for his glory. He sits and he watches and he prays. And He cares for us better than we know how to care for ourselves, better than you know even how to ask for help for yourself. He knows. 
And He does it to His glory. You're standing before God. Is in light of His sitting. Triumphant and victorious on the throne. And His purposes are all good for you. His purposes are absolutely wonderful. He's obtained a more excellent ministry, we're told in verse 6, because the promises, the promises associated with the new covenant are even more glorious than the old. The promises of the new covenant are that He shall be your God and we shall be His people. That we will be with Him And He will be with us. That we will never be alone again. That we will never stray again. He is changing us and preparing us for that day when we will come to the marriage feast of the Lamb and there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more heartache. Oh, He is the mediator of a better covenant for us with better promises that bring real change to our lives that give us real hope and give us real salvation, not just shadows of it. Now, my brothers and my sisters, let me encourage you and challenge you. What you face in your daily life, struggle with besetting sins, fears about your job or about your marriage or about your children, concerns about your community and about the nation and the world, all of these are important things to pray about. But as you pray, pray knowing. Pray in the name of. Pray on the sure and firm fact that Jesus is in the throne room above and that He has all that you need to glorify Him in your life. Praise Him. Trust Him. Thank Him. Live responsively to Him. Let us pray.